You're listening to the Bible for Normal People, the only God-ordained podcast on the internet. I'm Pete Enns. And I'm Jared Bias. Today we're talking about the end times in American Christian culture. You know, it's a new spin on a classic tale, but we're talking with Dan Koch, host of the You Have Permission podcast and a doctoral student in counseling psychology. And the reason we're talking with Dan is he did some research on this in American Christian culture and thought it would be a good time, it is still 2020 after all, to talk about the end times. So, we hope that you enjoy this episode, but before we jump in, I did want to mention we have something new on our Patreon page, patreon.com front slash the Bible for normal people, where after each episode of the podcast with a guest, Pete and I are actually doing an afterword. It's about an eight to 10 minute commentary on the episode where we dive into some things that we hadn't been able to dive into in the episode. So, go ahead and check it out, patreon.com front slash the Bible for normal people. Enjoy. People who believe, literally, that their neighbors and co-workers will burn in hell do not make life decisions that reflect that belief. Except for the handful of people outside the baseball game, who, by the way, most of us would assume have a psychiatric condition. Things that we assent to, are, are it's kind of not that big of a part of our lives, and we don't really think about them all that much. Let's talk microdosing, as you'd expect from a Bible podcast. Microdose gummies deliver perfect entry-level doses of THC that help you feel just the right amount of good. And you know, microdose gummies are good for so many things like anxiety, workflow, sleeping, and stuff like that. I mean, Jared, we've had people in our lives that have benefited from this too, not just us. Yeah, I have a family member who regularly uses microdosing for more creative, like recreational time, a time they journal every night and it's sort of a way to unwind and do the journaling. And that's worked really well for them. Our yeah. producer. Our producer. It's made such a difference, folks. I can't even tell you that. So anyway, <laughs> and for me as well, uh, microdose gummies help me a lot with anxiety and sleep and just stopping that racing mind at night. And it helps tremendously. I get a good night's sleep. So get 30% off your first order plus free shipping today at microdose.com. Promo code normal people. It's available nationwide. That's microdose.com. Promo code normal people for 30% off and free shipping. Microdose.com. Promo code normal people. So, yeah, I mean, just looking at the title, you know, the end times in the Bible and American Christian culture. So, you gave a few passages and it's something that's pretty relevant. So, do you want to like trace that historically? Is that right? From, from like uh, the hippies, <laughs> the Jesus yeah. movement? Yeah. Well, so, so the way that I have framed it is I, first I did, I did a four part series on sort of younger people, like roughly my age and end times and mental health. So, anxiety, depression, scrupulosity, stuff like that. Mm. And then as I was making that series, I was like, wait a minute, why the hell was this popular to begin with? Like, right. if I kick it back a step, like why was Left Behind massively successful, right? And so that led to this two-part follow-up, which uh, part one aired on Monday, the next part two airs on this coming Monday, which is my answer to that question, mm -hmm. which is basically, yeah, it's, it's tracing it to the Jesus movement, and a little bit before that, you know, John Darby in the Schofield Reference yes. Bible. So, looking at the 70s and why it was so plausible to baby boomers, basically. And then, if we get to the 90s and it's left behind, the people who were, basic, who basically came to Christ or whose faith was reinvigorated around the Jesus movement are the people who hold all the cultural power in evangelicalism mm -hmm. in the 90s. So, when Left Behind comes out... And it's starting to sell pretty well. It's like everybody and their mother gets on right. board because this is how they fell in love with Jesus was through around stuff like this. Never mind that, of course, you know, how Lindsay was wrong about everything he predicted <laughs> and all, you know, but it was like nostalgic and it yeah. felt, it was like their, I don't know, it was their what forte. Was their, it seemed like it's, it was their cultural milieu yes. in which they came to faith in Christ. And then now this is popular again. It's almost, it reminds me when you say that of me with my kids when a Nirvana song comes on. I'm like, I want yes. you to experience this in the same <laughs> yes. way that I experienced it in the 90s. Like, this is kind of, you know, this is real life. This is real living. This is how I kind of grew up. And it sounds like that was a similar experience you're saying with these people who came to faith in the 70s, then this left behind, end of the world, rapture filled way of looking at faith, it felt like home and they wanted to introduce their family to it. 
Is that a good way yes, of saying that? Yes, I think that's a good way of saying it. Yep. I had that. I mean, I remember having a conversion experience in high school, and it was that. And I remember, like, sitting around expecting the rapture to happen in May of that year. You know, that was just... The urgency of that. Yeah, that was just the moment. And that's just, that's just equated with Christian faith in, in a lot of circles. So, But it's a fascinating question. Cause, I mean, I have to be honest with you, Dan. I never... I don't think I ever thought about why it started. You know, that's, that's yeah. a really, really good question to ask because I think having a why, an understanding of the why, can help clarify a lot of things and maybe give us knowledge to maybe think differently about some of this. So, can we go – let's go back here and rewind to – you mentioned Darby, Schofield Reference Bible, some of that – which was sort of the beginnings of this. I mean, what, what, are we, what are we talking about? How would you articulate, I keep wanting to just say left behind theology, uh, but how would you articulate it? And can you give us a little more background on the roots that you found for this kind of thinking? Yeah, so the technical term for it is premillennial dispensationalism. So dispensational, yeah, right. Dispensationalism is the idea that basically uh, the history of mankind on the earth is split into usually seven periods, dispensations. And I'm not an expert on this, but it's like, you know, creation, perfection, then there's the fall. And then towards the end, you've got the church age, which is like when Christianity is doing its thing. And then you've kind of got the millennium. And there's a, f- a few other ones in the middle, different covenants and stuff like that. Premillennial dispensationalism is the idea that the rapture and the tribulation and all this, like the tribulation that's in basically the book of Daniel, this is how people read it anyway, happens before the millennium, premillennial dispensationalism. And this belief, this way of reading the Bible, specifically the way this way of reading Daniel and Revelation and some bits of Ezekiel and whatnot comes through John Nelson Darby. He's a British theologian in the 19th century. And he basically, he started it. He, he was quite influential. And his work ends up being basically the liner notes of the Schofield Reference Bible, which some people will have heard of, which mm-hmm. became massively popular after it was published in 1909. It was like huge in the United States. Uh, I interviewed in, in some of these baby boomer interviews I did for these recent episodes. One of the guys, Danny, said the first book I ever bought at a Christian bookstore was a Schofield Reference Bible. I still had one. It was required reading at Liberty when I was there. So like that was the Bible we had to use. <laughs> that's insane, but I believe it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, so oh, by that's the way, I Darby. went to college in 1912. I just want to make that clear. <laughs> <laughs> you are old, you are uh, older than you sound. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so so basically it's this one guy. I mean, really, he kind of invents it and then it becomes very popular. Now, the reason he is popular is because he makes one really big prediction that comes true. In 1829, he predicted that Israel would reform as a nation. Now, I guess that technically the Schofield Bible became popular before that ever happened, but the reason that it ends up popular like in the 60s, 70s and onward is that Israel becomes a nation. So he got that one right and if you're in this world, that's the thing you point to and you go, oh, so this is a correct way of viewing the world through this prophecy lens. And isn't like 40 years after Israel becomes a nation, Jesus comes back or something like that? I vaguely yeah. remember that. Yes. So this is in the late great planet Earth, Hal Lindsey's 1970, 71 book, which was uh, oh, among the, the top 10. Yeah. Among mm. the top 10 uh, selling books, nonfiction books of the 1970s. So it was massively in the States, massively popular book. You know, I try so hard to write good books. And I know. I should write a crap book. <laughs> I know, Actually, I a lot can, of people think my really books trying. are crap anyway. So, okay. Anyway, go ahead. No, I, every, so, every time I hear, hear Hal Lindsey, I just sort of, my skin crawls like, I just, how could you, anyway, go ahead. Don't you, okay, but Pete, a little bit of a sidebar. I mean, I'm increasingly thinking, not that this should be an excuse for bad writing or anything, but anything that becomes a certain amount of popular, like past a certain threshold, that makes me think it's more likely to be wrong than right. Hmm. Like the Bible. I, I think no. you guys, I, what I hear <laughs> is Bible. you guys are just, I, yeah, I hear some jealousy going on here. <laughs> 
That's what I hear. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's true. All I can do is make a few podcast episodes slamming these, you know, Yeah, exactly. Right. And we're better than them. Yeah. Aesop has a fable about some sour grapes and a fox. I think you guys should read so it. So this is like a therapy session now, isn't it? Yeah, All right, it let's is. get back. Let's yeah, get anyway, back to where something. Where were we? Hal Lindsey, yes. Early 70s, Lake Ripley, and the 40 that's years. that's fascinating, though, that what I'm hearing you say is... Well, he was is talking about the 40 years. The, I want to hear that. No, he was he was pandering to you because you brought no, it up. No, I want to know what, why 40 years. It is important. So it is important to understanding this. So there's a certain passage where, you know, Jesus says, there are some of you standing here today who will not taste death before oh, you see right. the kingdom. Now, there are various ways of interpreting that. Pete, you, you probably know this better than the rest of us. You know, some of them are Jesus of Nazareth ha- held a false belief about this, which is maybe fine with still being divine. Other views are like, he's talking allegorically. It's like mankind, you know, or whatever. Another view is that it's that the final generation. So that verse on this way of thinking is not spoken to the disciples, Mm -hmm. to the literal people standing in front of Jesus. It is spoken to the final generation. I don't know how they get that, but that's how they, that's what they get. And so that then leads to people saying like, okay, it has to happen by 1988, which is why you had that very popular pamphlet that sold some millions of copies, uh, 88 reasons why Christ will return in 1988 or whatever it was called. So that is the reasoning behind that particular view. And then of course, now that that hasn't happened, there are people who will say, well, maybe a generation is 80 years or a hundred years. You know, there's there's ways to wiggle out of it, of course, because enough of it is, you know, flex flexible enough. Yeah. But, but what I was getting to before Pete rudely interrupted me was, <laughs> yes, Jared, what do you the, want to talk about? The Go focal ahead. point is this 1948 date because he got that one right. And so that becomes that one right. yeah. kind of the epicenter. Now, now we can go forward and say, okay, the first one was let's interpret this verse to say forty years. So that would put us at eighty-eight. But then, if that's wrong, that's okay because we can go back to forty-eight and we can project another thing, and we can kind of keep. It seems like it's sort of circling around Israel becoming a state and how that was a true prediction based on these certain interpretations. Yeah. Now, one thing that's interesting to consider, and a lot of historians have done good work around this, is. Is Israel becoming a nation state a a prophecy fulfilled by God that Darby foresaw in the text, or is it a self-fulfilled prophecy, right? There's evidence that British Zionists like Darby sort of gave some of the ideas to the larger Zionist movement. And if you think about how big the Schofield Bible is in the early 20th century, that's when you start to have these American groups really pushing for this kind of a thing. So it's it has some causal effect on the formation of the nation of Israel mm-hmm. in 48. So you, you mean, basically, they could have been picking up on all these uh, people saying this is a prophecy and they say, oh, hmm, that's a good idea. Maybe we should gather ourselves together and head back to Israel. Yeah, I mean, I, I would say there's a there's a uh, hmm, slightly more cynical take, which would be something like the way that uh, some Jewish groups today view Zionist, you know, Christian Zionist is like, these guys are crazy, but we'll take their money and political power for the things that we happen to agree on, mm-hmm. you know, so they don't, mm-hmm. they're not so concerned with the mosque on the Temple Mount or whatever, you know, I, I mean, I don't know, I'm not going to speak for Zionist Jewish organizations, but they certainly don't agree on everything. They don't believe there's going to be, they, you know, they don't, they don't buy into the whole Antichrist tribulation stuff, right? But they'll take the money and they'll take the lobbying that these groups do toward, you know, American elected officials. So, okay, so let's fast forward then. That's kind of, that gets us to that 88, that fails, but then there's this renewed interest in the 90s through these left behind books. Is that is there a through line there of just, they're just picking that up and it's this nostalgia or is there more to it? Are there other facets that you kind of learned in these interviews? Yeah, so I was mostly focusing on sort of the 70s themselves, right? I wanted to understand why this was so plausible to them at the time, right? Um, And we can come back to that if you want. Uh, But it it remains plausible, right? This generation, for whatever reason, in uh, a large chunk anyway of them, they, they don't ever really abandon this belief. There are ways of sort of massaging it. Oh, so maybe a generation is not 40 years or, you know, maybe, maybe that's metaphorical or whatever, but they just sort of keep this basic attitude of Christ is coming soon. 
And by the time the Left Behind books come out, well, now you've got a purported prophecy expert in Tim LaHaye, who is, I, I believe, quite established at this point. My, my research on the Left Behind stuff is less than on Lake Great Planet Earth and, and Darby. But now you've got this, this uh, popular culture item that's blowing up, and it, yeah, it is nostalgic, but it also hasn't really left. And the other key bit here is who is holding sort of the cultural power in the mid-90s. It's the boomers, right? This is the time when some of the people who were 25 when they became a Christian in the Jesus movement, well, now they're 50, right? And so they're seminary professors. They're on the board of seminaries. They're on the board of denominations of the Southern Baptist Convention. You know, they're running their own Calvary Chapel. They're the head pastor now. They are now a manager at a Christian publishing company, as opposed to they just got their first job at the Christian publishing company, right? You see what I'm saying? So they're just the right age for this kind of more robust career space. And further, baby boomers were really good all along at using media. And so they are not only the people who have the, the power in the you know evangelical subculture come 90s, they've also been training themselves to use mass media for 25 years. And this started even with Hal Lindsey and some of those early folks. Uh, and so basically, you, it's just kind of a perfect storm. This, this thing that, that comes through that was a part of the very reason they got saved. You know, Pete, I, I've been talking a lot, but let me make this one last connection. Pete said that his conversion in high school included just, of course, the rapture is coming soon. And all four of the people I interviewed, all four boomers, said everybody just agreed. It just was like, it was just taken for granted that Christ was coming back soon. It was just so in the water of that subculture. Then now in the 90s, Left Behind comes out, this is like the bride of our youth to misquote scripture, right? <laughs> it just felt like it's that good old time religion. This is the good stuff. Jared, your Nirvana thing is is perfect. Like, you know, or it's like the Beastie Boys document documentary comes out on Netflix. Mm -hmm. And if you have a 13 year old kid, you're like, let's watch the Beastie Boys documentary together because that <laughs> is the real stuff, right? <laughs> it's just, you know, it's it's forgivable in that sense. It's It's normal and human. I guess uh, the question that I'm still coming back to is, I mean, you said it was just in the water, you know, to think that way. And I'm wondering, like, why why is that in the water to begin with? And I know we went back to the 19th century to Darby, but to me that still begs the question of what would make I – mean, in technical terms, what would make such an apocalyptic interpretation of the Christian faith so attractive and have such staying power – and, you know, just, you know, even when it's clearly not true, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's just like the uh, 40s yes. came away. So, so why? <laughs> Thank you for why, saying it that way. <laughs> well, you know, I don't mind saying that. I know, because, I you know, know. Yeah. You know, but this is, you know, a, an apocalypticism and there are all, I guess there are all sorts of reasons why that would be attractive to people. But um, have you given any, found anything out on that or given any thought to like why this would even be popular to be Like, why did Darby do what he did? You know, that kind of stuff. Yeah. So, um, I don't know about Darby. I mean, I think that Darby Yeah, forget just, him. Let's go, let's go yeah. closer in time. Let's go. Let's talk about the, the 70s. Yeah. Because technically, Darby could have been, you know, a hundred people like Darby. One of them gets it right with Israel. You know, whatever. Like, somebody gets it right. But in the 70s, so when your generation, my parents' generation, really latched onto this stuff, uh, I'll give two reasons. One is that it seemed plausible in the 1970s that things were pretty much coming to an end. Uh, you've got the Cold War, you've got the space race, you've got Vietnam War is still going on and no end in oh, sight. Terrorism. Terrorism, yes. right? Uh, the 70s ends with the Iran-Contra affair. You've got, you know, nuclear arsenals are built, are built up between, you know, basically warring superpowers. There's just a lot of stuff going on. You have a, a, a big recession in the States in the mid-70s. Uh, civil unrest, right? So it's just a, it's a rough time. Uh, sociopolitically, culturally, et cetera. And then the other bit that I was uh, very surprised and interested to find is that two things are very tied together. Reading these prophecies the way that, that these people are reading them and reading the text overall a certain way. And, I'll, and here's the best way to say it. If you're doing a prophecy map, which is what a lot of these things were called, 
you're doing math, right? You're saying it's this many days, it's this many years. Once this thing happened, it kicks in this timeline and this clock starts going. Now, could you, here's a, here's a hypothetical question for my Bible scholars here. Could you have the type of math that is sufficiently accurate to make a prophecy map and have some loosey-goosey inspiration model like Pete has about the Bible. Would that work? <laughs> no. It would not work. You need something closer to dictation, yeah. right? So you you basically need something like the Quran or the Book of Mormon, where it is like exact words that God gives to people. Otherwise, the math, you know, uh, the quadratic formula doesn't work if it's like X squared-ish, right? It's yeah. got to be exact. <laughs> so... So basically, the, my my thesis is that people really like reading the text that way, and that way of reading the text is it is immediately applicable. It eschews scholarly work and the need to get a big degree, which makes it very popular in low church settings, which a lot of these, you know, the more prophecy heavy groups are mostly low church. They're Baptist, they're independent Baptist, they're, you know, they're not Methodist and Episcopal. Yeah, right? not so, a lot of Episcopalians running around talking about the end times. Exactly. So, yeah. so it just kind of fits in with that way of reading the Bible. And I think this is maybe a little harder argument to make because I don't I don't know as much of the research. But my take from just these four interviews with these boomers is there was a real fervor. It was a moment kind of like our own in the sense of there was a kind of cultural Christianity that a young generation saw and thought, this is kind of silly and bankrupt and a lot of arbitrary rules here about dancing and playing cards and wearing a suit. What is all this? Mm -hmm. And then the hippie Jesus comes along and it's like, oh, this is so much more real. And in fact, they were right about that. I mean, that was that's true. That is more real. Yeah, it is apocalyptic in that sense that, you know, in the 60s, they're looking to dismantle this age and create a new one. Yes. Right. I mean, I, yeah. I don't mean that. I don't mean that pejoratively. I, just, I mean that's 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 one way of interpreting it. So maybe an apocalyptic notion. And again, you know, for our, our listeners, we've had some discussions about this, right, Jared, in, in recent months. Mm -hmm. But uh, apocalypse doesn't mean you know the world is ending. It's more a new age is starting. One age is passing away. Another age is taking over. Right. And and that could just be mean politically yes, or imp exactly. empire. It doesn't necessarily mean cosmically. Yeah, it's not right. it's not, not even about destruction necessarily, but it's about a shift in in um how the world works and how and how especially how I think politics is is very much the heart of apocalyptic. But so yeah, I mean I think that's what you're saying makes a lot of sense when you have that's very much the sixties, the counter cultural movement and the church this would not be the first time the church follows cultural currents. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the U.S.? They have everything you could possibly want like fruit trees, palm trees, evergreens, houseplants, and so much more. Whatever you're interested in, they have it for you. Find the perfect fit for your climate and space. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee, they offer free plant consultation forever. I was worried about talking about fast-growing trees on here because I'm not a green thumb, but then I realized that probably makes me the perfect candidate to be able to talk about this. I loved the website. It was so easy. It was searchable by region. And then the experts who are there to help you make the decisions lowers the anxiety around something I don't typically know a lot about, but it was a really good experience. This spring, they have the best deals online up to half off on selected plants and other deals. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at FastGrowingTrees.com using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. FastGrowingTrees.com, code NORMALPEOPLE. Offer is valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. A calling is a powerful thing. It's a very strong belief that there is something bigger for you. It's about who you are and where you're going in life. You may be in college, you may be halfway through a career, but you want something different. There's a place for you at Union Presbyterian Seminary, where students are prepared for a call to ministry. At Union, you will find a diverse community. You'll find students from different denominations and professors who will listen to you and challenge you. You'll find people who help you find your own path. 
You'll find a school where financial realities matter. Union offers generous financial aid, and it meets you where you are with three different platforms for learning, residential, online, and hybrid. You'll find a world-class faculty who will invest in you, a community long after you graduate that supports you and equips you for service and for leadership. Safwat Marzuk, who has been on the podcast here on The Bible for All People, is a faculty at Union Presbyterian Seminary and is slated to write one of our upcoming commentaries. It's no secret, if you're a listener of the podcast, how much Pete and I have relied on our seminary education and how much that has shaped our view of the world and all of our work here at The Bible for Normal People. It's your call. Respond with Union Presbyterian Seminary. To learn more, go to upsem.edu or email admissions at upsem.edu. Uh, I'd like to add a third explanatory mm-hmm. thread here. So I mentioned the, the 70s are crazy. It's tied to a way of reading the text that, that people like, and that was sort of already established. Another one is that, and this is more pulling on the original, the the four-part series from earlier this year about uh-huh. younger people, more people my age, and sort of the mental health symptoms they had around end times teaching. I discovered, a, I did about 20 of those interviews, a lot more than the boomers, and I found in something like eight or 10 of these interviews, so a big chunk of them, I was trying to figure out the relationship in the way people were raised between Jesus coming soon and like the broader message of their church or like the salvation narrative, just sort of like the gospel that their church preached. And so much of the time, what I found was this, a pretty standard sort of binary, you're in or you're out, sheep and goats, you know, where would you go if you died tonight kind of evangelical approach to salvation or damnation. So real hell, real heaven. Uh, But you get these teenagers, right? And they're in youth group and they're in the service and they're not going to die anytime soon for the most part. And they know they're not going to die anytime soon. But what if I told you there was a way to get them to think as if they might die any, you know, sometime soon and not live (laughs) until their seventies or eighties. Right. So if Christ is coming back any day now, well, now you have the same urgency that you would be preaching at a 70 year old. You can preach that urgency at a 17 year old. And all the worries about people's teenagers and what are they going to get into and are they going to get pregnant and are they going to go off to war and, you know, all that stuff that parents naturally feel and, and pastors naturally feel towards young people in their church. Well, here's a simple solution. And lo and behold, everybody you went to seminary with also agrees with you on this. So it's the kind of thing that once it lays hold, it has so much psychological power. It preaches so well, as you might say. Uh, at least in the short term. And I think there are a lot of long-term consequences for this, but there's a lot of reason to keep doing that, to to hold that part of your theology in place because it's so damn effective. Stay tuned for more Bible for Normal People. Hi, Rob Buckingham here, and I'm part of the producers group at the Bible for Normal People. This podcast is brought to you by supporters on the Patreon platform. For as little as a dollar a month, you can be part of the group that brings this podcast to normal people everywhere. As a thanks for your support, there are lots of videos from Pete and Jared, a discussion group, and more. Check it out at patreon.com slash the Bible for Normal People. I love this podcast. It challenges me to see the Bible as wider and deeper, and it's helped me work through some of the tough topics. If you love this podcast too, why not support Pete and Jared at patreon.com slash the Bible for Normal People. One group in particular we want to thank is our producers group, who helped the podcast improve and make it what it is today. Thanks to Mark Miovich, Mike, Michelle Casey, Shaybox, Ted Cole, Dustin Borkham, Marilyn Johnson, Kevin Hoffer, Buzz Clute, and Becky Christensen. The Bible for Normal People couldn't happen without you. Now, back to the podcast. Yeah, and and one just briefly to interject. One re- another reason for that is that you know you know we we can kid about like hyper literalistic interpretation of the Bible and things like that, but the Bible is sort of open in many places to an apocalyptic interpretation. I mean, in fact, you know, we just had a guest on recently. She'll be you know aired in a while, but the New Testament is an apocalyptic text. And I guess that's sort of the struggle of what do you do with a text that's fundamentally apocalyptic? That's what, whenever you said uh, earlier, like, we're, you know, when you're taught that Jesus could come back any day, my first thought was, well, that sounds biblical. I know, exactly. Yeah, th- that's right. just it, you see. But then you have an apocalyptic text, but now 
for the most part, we, we don't have that same apocalyptic context that we live in today. And so it's a question of how do you bring that ancient apocalyptic text into a non-apocalyptic context? Well, you create an apocalyptic context, right? right? And, yeah. you know, the world, you have black and white, either or, and there's the sheep and the goat, like you said. And, and that, that sort of, that they all feed into each other to make this reading of Scripture highly plausible. That's really interesting. I, I hadn't thought of it like you actually make the world more apocalyptic, but you, you do see some of that in like, um, you, I mean, you see that very explicitly uh, in certain sort of Christian Zionist mm-hmm. groups mm-hmm. advocating specifically for the type of things that will make it such that Jesus can return, right? Yes, yes. Um, now, of course, some of those things are not necessarily like violent or anything. It's like, well, the gospel has to be preached everywhere, you know, or something like that. Right. So it's not all, but then I think some of them get, get really involved in that, you know, most messy of geopolitical climates in the Middle East, uh, and get their fingers in there. I'm sure in an ill-advised kind of a way. Well, and, and it's also a little bit of an interesting double bind within that theology, where, you know, I'm just thinking of some family and friends that I would have who would still hold to this, where it, it, it allows for this kind of win-win dynamic. So, when, when my political person is in charge, I'm able to say, yay, like, we're going to get back to God's way of doing things. And when the other political party is in charge, I can say, oh, well, it's bad now, but that means Jesus is coming back soon. And it's just this interesting way to read yeah. the tea leaves of any cultural moment through this lens, it's it's actually pretty sophisticated where you can, it, it allows for almost any outcome to fit the system and come to like a self-referential reinforcing conclusion. Totally. But I think that that is just the way that humans are. I just watched this documentary the other night about the people who followed Harold Camping when he predicted mm-hmm. that the world would end in 2011. And like, if even people who have been given a date walked around with placards on their back, handing out literature, the day comes and goes. If they can, after that, on camera, say something like, well, I guess it's happening in October and this was a spiritual rapture. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, like if, right. if, if even that can happen, then anytime you zoom out and it's, and it's less concrete than, this day it will all end, which the Bible, of course, does not ever do anything that concrete, right? So, I, I'm just saying our psychology is pretty fungible yeah. well, and on even, stuff like this. Even to go back to what Pete's saying, like, even that, I would say there is some evidence that, like, Paul was looking to that. Like, the early followers of Jesus were expecting, maybe not a 2011, but a definite in our generation sometime in the next few months, maybe the next few years, and that time, I mean— in some ways, the history of Christian theology is a making sense of that delayed parousia or delayed second coming. Right. And I'm not a New Testament scholar, but isn't there some of that in Paul, right? If you if you follow a rough dating, the later Paul letters, are, he's kind of like, okay, well, if this isn't happening right now, let's maybe we'll come up with some rules for how this could work and how that could work. Yeah. And, and maybe it's a more of a spiritualized thing. Am, am I right about that? Yeah. I mean, Paul's like saying, you know... In one letter, don't get married, it's going to happen any second. Then in another letter, well, in a letter Paul probably didn't write first Timothy, he's setting up bishops and elders because we're going to be here for a while, right? So, I mean, that's 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 exactly the, the dynamic. And in a way of speaking, I think it's a failure to appreciate that tension within the New Testament itself. It's privileging one aspect of that because it's hard to read – I mean, this is my opinion – it's hard to read the New Testament in general – and whenever somebody talks about the apocalypse and not not conclude that they mean really 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 soon don't don't be one of those virgins that doesn't bring enough oil <laughs> right in the parable in Matthew because this could happen we've all been second. there haven't we am i right yeah. Yeah, <laughs> very yeah. relatable content i always i always carry enough oil wherever i go anyway. i never kept enough oil on me when i was still that's a virgin that's the problem yeah. um so yeah you know but but that's uh, th- that tension in the new testament which is really fueled by even for them the unexpected delay and you know, it's it's sort of like that's. I, this sounds too harsh because I think Jared's right. This is a, this is still a rather sophisticated reading of the Bible, but 
it's an intricate. I don't know if I'd say sophisticated. It's an intricate. It, it, it takes many moving parts of the Bible and puts it together in a coherent sort of structure. But it's it's it has, still has to ignore a good bit of the Bible that maybe is also struggling with the length of time, like the you know, the end of John's Gospel and and you know doubting Thomas and you know I'm not going to believe unless I see and so Jesus is there so you can touch my side and he said you've seen because you believe because you've seen blessed are those who have not seen and still believe that's a message to a church that has been hanging around for at least a couple of generations waiting for things to happen and nothing's going on. Right, so you exactly. have that tension there and we're it, that's lost I think in this apocalypticism of our current time and you know it's it's easy to sort of translate that apocalyptic stuff into your own moment if you don't take all of the bible ironically seriously and struggle with it. Well like what you said Dan about you said a, a literal is sort of the tying of the literal, but I think to maybe how Pete talks about it often is there's also an ambiguity you can't have in the text if this is a predictive text that gives you clear right. answers about the future. It can't be ambiguous. And so, what do you do with the ambiguous parts of the Bible? You just ignore them. Yeah. So, well, there's <laughs> a lot of ways we could go with that. But yeah. I, I, I'd like to say, I'd like to soften the edges a little bit by saying, personally, I am currently very interested in people taking the apocalypticism seriously. You know, I'm this, these interviews are part of early work toward my own dissertation. So this is a thing that I am interested in, but there are also like massive church traditions over the last 2000 years that found a way to not do this, right? That mm -hmm. leaned more heavily into Jesus saying, no one knows the day or the hour. I mean, just off the top of my head, Catholics, Episcopals, Anglicans, and Orthodox. Yeah, pretty much everybody. Together comprise 70-ish percent <laughs> of the world's Christians don't do any of this end-time speculation stuff. So, it's not as if it is in the text. You're right. And especially if you are low church, I know I always, I'm, I'm total coastal elite. I should just own it. And I, you know, I tend, I tend to be disparaging towards low church traditions. I understand that people find enormous freedom in them. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, especially if you're in that kind of a situation and you've been taught it's just you in the text, well, this author thinks it's coming soon. I guess I should think it's coming soon. Obviously, the big ellipses there is, this was obviously written 2,000 years ago. So you, you'd want a little kind of a wink and nod, some kind of asterisk there, but you might not always get it for people when the yeah. text is so alive to them in this moment in their life, and that's because the Bible's powerful. So, it is a kind of a, it's a double-edged sword. Yeah, and, and it's the, and again, I don't, I actually don't blame anybody for not doing what I'm about to say they should be doing, because it's, it's, it's complicated and it's, it's, it's got a lot of moving parts. But to simply take, you know, this moment and leapfrog over those 2,000 years of church history to a very different time, very different place, we're actually ignoring how, like you said, a, a vast majority of Christians who have ever lived have, have worked this out differently. And there's something to be gained by a respect for the history of Christian thought, which is a big topic, by the way. That's 2,000 years of all sorts of stuff, right? But, you know, I, I tell my students that all the time, to know something about how Christians have thought through this passage, that, and the other thing, is very, very valuable, you know? And, but um, apocalypticism doesn't think that way. There's always the urgency and then you go back to the text that is a roadmap that apparently other people have misread. Can I throw a little psychological lens on this yes, and please. see what you guys think? So, I'm not a psychologist, to be clear. I have finished one year of a doctorate in psychology. I am okay. one-fifth of a doctor and then with no – at that point, having, having had no real experience. So, take it with a grain of salt. But here's where my mind went as you said that. Basically, if I am afraid, right, we know this – in the moment, just in momentary sort of biological psychology, when I am afraid and my amygdala is acting and I am in my fight, flight, freeze mode, that is not a time when I am capable of using my prefrontal cortex and doing my logical thinking and comparing A and B and projecting into the future in a rational way. I can't do that. Like the amygdala, it fires and it gets in the way of the other parts of my brain acting. And anybody who's ever been afraid, had a panic attack, felt really anxious, you know this feeling, right? If you are 
in the yeah. midst of that kind of thing, you, you can't do the long-term planning and you're not being rational. Mm. Perhaps if you are in a situation where you think you're, you're thinking, you're feeling apocalyptic, whether that is like the early church, you are literally being persecuted by a powerful empire and you have no idea how you are going to even get through the next few years with this emperor guy breathing down your neck. Or if you are a Jesus movement person in the seventies and any day now you grew up doing bomb drills in your, in elementary school and things are getting worse around the world and Russia could just end this whole thing any second. Maybe there is, maybe we can draw a line between the individual psychology and the group psychology or, you know, the group theology there, right? Maybe there is a relationship that to the extent you're afraid you're on edge to that same extent, you're not doing the careful work of considering 2,000 years of church history and how this stuff has been alternatively interpreted over time. Yeah, it's interesting. And this may take us a little a, f- a field of, of that, but it did make me think of, I, I can't help but draw a line between, I feel like a lot of my uh, friends and colleagues and people who would be maybe more progressive in this trend within evangelicalism toward more social justice-oriented understanding of the Christian faith, if that isn't maybe a, I'm going to put a value judgment on this, a healthier translation of this apocalypticism, meaning, yes, things do need to change. Yes, there are empires that need toppled. Yes, we need revolution. But rather than thinking it's coming from these supernatural divine encounters with angelic beings that are going to come destroy this world physically, it's up to us to sort of bring about this revelation and revolution and transformation. And it seems like we can keep that sense of urgency and apocalypticism, but maybe translate it into healthier ways. And I think I'm, I would say culturally, I'm seeing that within evangelicalism as this shift happens. I hope you're right. That's, I mean, that, that's definitely better. Yeah. <laughs> well, and, you know, it, it, one of the, I thought of that because it actually reminded me, and I don't remember who has said it. It's either uh, Derrida or Zizek, but I remember reading something from them about, hey, I understand they were making a cultural comment on all these end of the world movies because it's become really popular in the last few decades. So right. Probably yeah. Zizek because that's what he does. But he's always um, talking about movies. Yeah. Is you know he kind of said, well, I can uh, I can culturally. Uh, give an explanation for this in that at some point the despair becomes great so great that it's easier to imagine the end of the world than how we can ever make this mess better hundred mm-hmm. percent and i wow. think that's a kind of a at least that seems like a powerful cultural explanation for our fascination with a lot of this end times apocalyptic stuff yeah and another angle too for me is like people just believe all kinds of weird stuff and it's their their lives are not always impacted by it. So if you poll people, you know, it's like after 9-11, I don't remember the exact number, but something at one point, something like 50% of people answered that it would be, that was an inside job or like a massive number of people, uh, a very large number of people believe in like moon crystals and, you know, new age stuff. Even today, people believe all kinds of things if you ask them, but they're not necessarily drastically modifying their life. So people who believed that 9-11 was an inside job were not taking up arms against their conspiratorial government. And my favorite example within Christendom is people who believe literally that their neighbors and coworkers will burn in hell for eternally consciously do not make life decisions that reflect that belief. Mm-hmm. They do not. They still have a 401k. They take their kids to soccer practice. You know, they're not going around except for the handful of people outside the baseball game who, by the way, most of us would assume have a psychiatric condition. So it's like, there's something there as well that I think we would do well to re- remind ourselves that like things that we assent to are, are it's kind of not that big of a part of our lives and we don't really think about them all that much. A lot of it is just like, well, what do the people around me say they believe? And until I have the time to really think about it, which I may never have the time to think about 80% of these opinions I hold, well, when am I going to do that? So I'll just say the things that seem plausible based on people around me. Yeah. And that would be a good explanation for in the early 70s, everybody believing this with like 
on pretty scant evidence, right? Right, right. And it, it goes back to, you know, some of the things we've talked about on this podcast before, like, we've adopted this more uh, modern way of thinking of beliefs that it's just this mental game almost, like a, a mental checklist of things that we can believe that a large part of those beliefs don't actually impact. We, we it, it has a cultural impact on like, frankly, we like make these social lines of who's in and who's out based on them. But beyond that, it really doesn't have an impact on our everyday walking around life. Mm-hmm. Oh, I would say the social lines are the impact. So exactly. if you if you really look at someone's life who believes that, you know, their coworkers and friend and neighbors are going to hell, including their children, right? It's like, well, who am I going to let my kids play with? That's the actual impact or will I spend time with this person? Well, if they come to my church, I will. You know, and and that I don't even mean that consciously. I just mean like the the people who we end up agreeing with religiously, end up being the people we spend time with and live our lives with. And that's not all bad, but it, that is the actual outcome. I mean, for me, cause I don't believe that people are actually going to go to hell forever. Of course, if I'm wrong, then that is the real outcome. But assuming that I'm right, the real outcome is in the lived experiential difference uh, between, you know, who's in and who's out. And some people can take that and turn it into a life of, full of compassion. And th- those people are heroes. Uh, but most of us, you know, we, we just kind of go through our lives and we have these in-groups and out-groups and most of it's unthinking most of the time. And occasionally something will happen to us, some great loss or some great love that will cause us to, you know, pull our head up from sleep for a minute and recognize these patterns. But, mm-hmm. you know, those are gifts when they happen. Yeah, I mean, that's a really interesting point. I think an important point that you're making, Dan. Um, our, our our beliefs don't don't really translate into necessarily a thoroughgoing way of living. Like, if you, if you really believed your neighbor was going to burn in hell literally any second because they could just drop dead cutting the grass or something, you'd be, like, pounding on their door all the time because it's like if if the house is burning you need to try to get them out that's the analogy that's used but um that doesn't always translate and i think that holds true for many different for any ideology for any religion that's a common thing i just think of my own life and sometimes i i say i believe this but why do i keep having these same dumb habits or whatever and but i i think i think my opinion and you know you can disagree but i think those beliefs at least give us a big picture sense of comfort of like the big story, the big narrative that I'm a part of. I agree. And that's sort of good enough. You know, okay, I know how God works. I know what happens when you die. I know what's right and what's wrong. And now this scary world makes sense to me. And the filtering down to behaviors you know, Christians have the same problems as anybody else, you know, so I, I don't, I don't really right. see the point sometimes, but yeah. Well, I think that, you know, even for people who then leave behind their faith, I mean, it's not like we don't see all kinds of religious impulses and replacements in non-religious spaces. You know, it's not, this stuff is, seems to be pretty hardwired and it's, yeah. it's only a, a small number of people who actually can live without some kind of basic religious-like community that they're a part of whether or not it, you know, includes belief in God. Hmm. Um, I agree with you, Pete. I think that there's so many roles that our religious communities play. And I think, yeah, being embedded in a larger story is one. I mean, I think I'm thinking about this with my six month old son of like, I want him to know that God loves him and he can't get that right. Like he's not going to, he won't understand what I really mean by that until he's like a teenager but there is a felt sense that he could have, that he's okay, mm-hmm. that he's loved. And that is a theological view that I hold about him and about every human being. And so, if I want him to feel that before he has the cognitive ability to understand it the way that I understand it, well, then there's something in the middle, right, between my very well thought out theology and I was just handed this by my parents there's still something valuable in any of those expressions, mm-hmm. right? So it's, uh, if I really believe that God loves people, then I'm going to need to check my own sort of cultural elitism at when I want to look down my nose, <laughs> for instance, at low church Baptists, I as say, I apparently, the words out of my mouth. Right. as I apparently do, um, <laughs> I'm aware of it. I don't want to do it. Yeah. Uh, you know, but like, 
uh, why? But oh, but my own son, who's who's going to be stupider than all the Baptists in the world until he's at least fifteen or whatever. You know, by definition, uh, like oh, but I want him to know this God and know this comfort. You know, so I can't be, you know, I can't be hypocritical like that. And and I and I won't. And I I will always defend. You know, a a basic like layman's person religious impulse. Mm-hmm. I just think it's totally human and yeah. good. Yeah. Mm. Well, I think that's a great note to end on. It's a hopeful thing that, you know, as we wrestle with all these different cultural moments that we can all find ourselves, I don't know if we have a choice, but to be swept up in because we are always a product of that, to recognize that kind of grace is bigger than that. And we can, you know, we can do the best that we can and express our faith in the way that we can, whether they were in the Jesus movement in the 70s or you know, those high church snobs in the Episcopal church or whatever that is. So, but as we kind of wrap this up, Dan, where can people find you online? How can people follow some of these stories that you've been telling and these conclusions that you've been coming to? Yeah. So, uh, the main place I I do this stuff is the You Have Permission podcast. Those early episodes I mentioned are called End Times Anxiety Parts 1 through 4. And uh, these more recent ones are called End Times Popularity Part 1 and 2. I'm also, maybe by the time this airs, it will be out, but I'm, we're, we're getting close to finishing up a resource my friend Sari Concepcion and I called SoYourDeconstructing.com, and it is going to be a kind of a multi-topic resource. There are a number of Bible for Normal People episodes on there and a number of Pete's books. Jared, I haven't had the chance to look at your book yet, but perhaps it will make its way, uh, as well as resources for therapy and digital and in-person communities stuff like that. So those are probably the two things. And I'm on Twitter and Instagram, but mm. you don't really need more of that in your life. So <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Thanks so much Dan for coming on. We really appreciate the conversation. I think it's a it's a lively conversation that it really struck a chord with yeah. me because you're talking about, you know, my childhood and my parents' upbringing and and really hit home. Yeah. And apparently Pete's high school experience. Right. Hey, I'm a boomer barely. My age of birth. So you could have interviewed me but you didn't, but that's okay. <laughs> Conflict of interest. I have a lot. I'm, I'm becoming a grumpy boomer anyway. So, okay. On that note, <laughs> becoming? <laughs> yeah, I know. Hey, it's not like my wife. Just kidding. Excellent. <laughs> All, All right, right, Dan. Thanks, Dan. Thank you. Yeah, guys. Thanks, everyone, for joining us for another episode. We hope you had a wonderful Thanksgiving. Be sure to check us out on social media at all the places where you can connect with us. We'd love to keep the conversation going. Thanks again. See you next time. Thanks, as always, to our team. Executive producer, Megan Kamick. Audio engineer, Dave Gerhardt. Creative director, Tessa Stoltz. Marketing wizard, Reed Lively. Transcriber and community champion, Stephanie Spate. And web developer, Nick Striegel. For Pete, Jared, and the entire Bible for Normal People team, thanks for listening. <laughs>